The following sermon is by Dr. Chuck Register, Interim Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this morning uh, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9, specifically focusing on verse 9, uh, wanting to answer the question this morning, what is grace? Now, if there's a group of people that ought to be able to answer that question biblically, it's we Southern Baptists. Uh, we, we preach about grace. We teach about grace in our Sunday school classes. Our, our national anthem is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. We, we sing about Amazing Grace. So we ought to be able to answer the question, what is grace? In the passage that we study this morning, uh, that question is answered for us. And, and I think of this passage as almost a grace puzzle. There are three pieces to this puzzle that we need to take a look at at the end of our time together, maybe piece them back together and see what the full picture looks like. And those three pieces of this puzzle are the resource for grace. Where does grace come from? Secondly, the reason for grace. Why, why do we get grace poured into our lives? And then finally, What's the result of grace? Once grace flows into our life, what's the result for us? And I think if we look at those three pieces of this grace puzzle, we can eventually answer this question, what is grace this morning? So come with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 7, as we begin to answer the question, the resource for grace, where does grace come from? Verse 7, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Paul goes on to say, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, theologians really do not know what this thorn in the flesh happened to be. There have been guesses and speculation through the years uh, some believe that Paul's talking about his very poor eyesight. We do know that the Apostle Paul, in writing many of the letters to the churches contained in the New Testament, uh, had a gentleman who was his assistant who would write things down for him, kind of a personal secretary, because he had poor eyesight. Some people believe it's eyesight is the issue. Some would say the thorn in the flesh are migraines that beset uh, the Apostle Paul. That, I read one commentator that said he, that it was his mother-in-law. Now, I'm not going there at all. But, but for some reason, he felt that Paul's mother-in-law was a thorn in the flesh. If you saw the movie, Paul the Apostle, they had an interesting take on this concept of a thorn in the flesh. In the movie, Paul the Apostle, it was the dreams that Paul had at night of when he was Saul. And he persecuted the church. And he would cast Christian men and women and children in chains and in jail. And he oversaw their executions. And in that movie, the, the director brought back these horrifying images at night when Paul would try to sleep. And implied that was the thorn in the flesh. Truth is, we don't know. What we do know is that Paul has a thorn in the flesh. What we do know is that Paul considered this thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan. And we know from what we're about to read that this thorn in the flesh tormented 
the Apostle Paul. Look back at the verse. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Verse 8, here's how bad, here's how tormented the Apostle Paul is by this thorn in the flesh. Concerning this, this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. The word implored there is a word that is a powerful word in the New Testament, and it means to beg, to beg with passion. It means to plead. Here's the imagery that Paul gives us. He has a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. It is so tormenting Paul that Paul says three times, I begged God to remove this thorn in the flesh from me. In my mind's eye, I can see the Apostle Paul as perhaps he, he begins in his first pleading of the Lord and maybe his eyes are cast toward heaven and his hands are surrendered to the Lord as he simply begs the Father. The next time Paul begins, I see in my mind's eye, he, he's on bended knee. He has humbled himself before the Lord and he's crying out to God for God to remove this thorn in the flesh. The third time I see Paul, He's flat out. He's as discouraged, he's as disheartened, he's as broken as he can be over this thorn in the flesh. And, and he is just prostrate before the Lord, begging and pleading for God to remove this thorn in his flesh. And the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, every time he says amen on his prayer, Paul notices the thorn is still there. He prays, the thorn is present. He prays the second time, God, please remove it, and it's present. He prays a third time, and the thorn is still there. Paul is tormented, and his prayers seem to have no power. And what we discover, ladies and gentlemen, is that God is wanting to teach Paul one of the greatest lessons about grace that he has to teach. He knows that if he removes the thorn from Paul's flesh, Paul will never learn. He will never enroll in this master's level course to learn about grace. And it is more important in God's eyes for Paul to learn about grace than for Paul to be comfortable in his life. It's more important in the Father's eyes for Paul to learn all there is to know about grace than for him to be comforted and happy in life. And it's at this point that we begin to see the resource for grace. Come with me, verse 9. And he said to me, the he speaking of Jesus, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, Paul writes, so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Did you see it? The resource for grace? The, the words unflow uh, so rapidly. They unfold so rapidly we, we almost forget that Jesus says, my grace. And in those two words, Jesus reveals for us where grace comes from. Grace comes only from the Godhead. 
Grace does not come to us because we enter the waters of baptism. Grace does not come to us because we uh, consume a wafer and juice at the Lord's Supper or the communion table. Grace does not come to us because we are moral individuals who try to help our fellow man. Grace only comes to us in our life from the Godhead. And what we discover in Scripture, ladies and gentlemen, is that is the conviction of the Apostle Paul. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're coming back there in a minute. Come with me to Romans chapter 1. I want you to see that Paul is convinced, he's convicted, that the only place we'll ever find grace is from the Godhead. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. Begin reading with me, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here it is, verse 5, through whom we have received grace. Paul said, I have a conviction. Grace only comes to us from Jesus. It comes to us from the Godhead. If, if we're searching for grace in our life, we need to turn our eyes toward heaven because grace only comes from God. Now, Scripture thinks and speaks and teaches of three different types of grace. I want you to see this this morning. We're only going to examine and study one type of grace, but Scripture teaches of three different types of grace. Number one, come with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, once again writing, writes of saving grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Saving grace. Saving grace comes to us from Jesus. Saving grace is that grace that Jesus pours into our life that gives us faith to trust Him as Lord and Savior. It is through saving grace that our sins are forgiven. It is through saving grace that heaven becomes our eternal home. It is through saving grace that abundant life becomes ours. Saving grace only comes to us from Jesus Christ, and the only way for you and I to be saved is to experience saving grace. Not through morality, not through good works, not through having a, a spotless reputation, not through being active uh, in a local church. Saving grace only comes from Jesus. Second kind of grace we see in Scripture is what I call serving grace. Come back with me to Romans. Kind of a Bible drill competition this morning. Come with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul is still writing. Paul begins to write in verse 12 of what I call serving grace. Look with me. Chapter 12, verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us does to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortations, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. What's Paul writing about in Romans 12? 
He's writing about grace gifts, spiritual gifts placed within our life for us to serve the Lord. And so in Ephesians, Paul writes about saving grace that comes only from Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 12, Paul speaks of serving grace, that we are given spiritual gifts to use in serving the Lord. But when we come back to our text this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's not speaking about saving grace, and he's not speaking about serving grace. Listen, he's speaking of sustaining grace. That grace that we need in our life to get through each and every day. That grace that we need when life is on the mountaintop and we're filled with happiness and joy. And that grace that we need when life is in the valley and we are miserable by the way things are unfolding in our day-to-day existence. And so this morning, we're going to talk about sustaining grace. We come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we remind ourselves of where where sustaining grace comes from. And Jesus said to Paul, my grace. Sustaining grace comes from Jesus. Now the question is, why does the Lord Jesus offer us sustaining grace? Why is it this morning, March of 2020, here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, when a double handful of us are gathered for worship, why does the Lord himself offer us sustaining grace? Well, the text reveals it for us. Come back and let's look at verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected. Here's the answer. Why does Jesus offer us sustaining grace? For power is perfected in weakness. The word weakness that's used there, ladies and gentlemen, means strengthlessness. What Jesus is saying to the Apostle Paul, who is being tormented by this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan... Paul, I give sustaining grace because there are some times in life you are weak to overcome the challenge you face. Sometimes in life, Paul, you're completely powerless to deal with your problems, to solve your problems. No matter what you try, you can't bring about an answer to the challenge that you face. And in the midst of that hardship, in the midst of that mountain before you, I offer you sustaining grace. Grace. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. We have our our daughter with us this morning. Uh, Her congregation uh, postponed their services, and so she's worshiping with us today. She's the younger, more beautiful two of our children. Her older brother's the ugly one. And he's 33 now, will be 33 in just a, a little while, 33. Well, when he was growing up, Chip is his name. You've heard me speak of Chip. Uh, Chip Chip was addicted to peanut butter. He just had to have some peanut butter just about every day in his life. Now, he liked peanut butter on bread. He liked peanut butter on crackers. He liked peanut butter on a spoon. He liked peanut butter on his finger. He just liked peanut butter. So on this particular evening, Charlene and I were watching the Braves on television, Braves baseball. It was back in the golden era of Braves baseball where you, you didn't want to miss a pitch when Maddox was pitching. And Chip needed some peanut butter. 
So out of the corner of my eye, I watch Chip as he goes into the kitchen to get the peanut butter, and he climbs up on the counter. He's not supposed to do that. He's only four. He climbs up on the counter. He, he reaches up into the pantry. He pulls down a jar of peanut butter, and in horror of all horrors, it's a never-opened four-pound jar of peanut butter. And he takes his little four-year-old hand, and he tries to open it. And it's tougher than he is. I mean, he strains. He just can't budge the lid on that jar. He watched a little too much wrestling on Saturday, so he put it in a headlock, and he it just wouldn't budge at all. So Chip, Chip carried that peanut butter jar to the one person in his life that he knew could do anything in all the world, his mother. And he handed it to Charlene, and, and she took the jar, and, and she's kind of watching, clued in on the baseball game. She, she's not really paying attention, but she can't get the jar open. And, and she focuses a little bit and tries, and she still can't get the jar open. So she kind of backs into the kitchen while she's watching the, the baseball game. And ladies, she went through some steps you've gone through a thousand times. She, she gets a knife out of the drawer and she taps it on the head and tries. That doesn't open it up. She goes over to the sink and runs some hot water and puts the lid under the hot water. That doesn't work. She goes over and she gets her secret weapon. You know that little square thing from Tupperware that's made to open jars? She, she pulls out the heavy artillery from the, from the drawer. She puts that on. It won't open a bit. Chip's devastated. His mom can't even open a jar of peanut butter. And so he brings it to the person of last resort, his dad, and, and he says, Dad, can, please. And, and it just, the lid just came right off. Charlene had kind of loosened it up for me. Yeah. Now, why do I tell you that silly story? Because that illustrates this passage of Scripture. You see, all of us have peanut butter jars in our life. They don't say Jif or Peter Pan. They've got a lot of different labels. They're challenges and problems we can't solve on our own. No matter how strong we think we are, no matter how much we strain, no matter how many secret weapons of logic that we have in the kitchen of our life to help us get that lid open. There are some jars we just can't open on our own. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, we've done all we can do. We've given you every medication we have to give. We've tried every, every therapy we know to try. Surgery's not an option. We've done everything we can do. You're powerless. To open that jar, Jesus says, that's why I offer you sustaining grace. There are times in your life that you're weak. You, you're, you have strengthlessness before the challenge that you face. Some of us experience financial problems. That's our peanut butter jar. We, we try to, to budget. We try to tighten our belt, but it seems there's never enough money to make it to the end of the month, and we, we don't know what else to do. We've cut and we've cut and we've cut. Jesus says, that's why I offer you my sustaining grace. Because sometimes you, you just can't open those jars in your life. Now listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Coronavirus, in its own way, is a peanut butter jar right now. 
Now, I have complete confidence in our medical research professionals. They'll, they'll develop a vaccine. It'll take a while. But right now, truth is, except for using common sense, no one in this room can open the jar and solve the problem called coronavirus. We can wash our hands, and you need to wash your hands. 20 seconds hot water scrub. Do what your mama taught you when you were little. We can observe social distancing, and I can see you're doing that very well this morning. We can avoid crowds of people, and we've made some decisions here uh, at Emmanuel Baptist Church to help us do that over the next two weeks. There are some things we can do that are common sense and wise, but the truth is, when it comes to coronavirus, we all are holding a jar in our hands this morning that we are powerless to open on our own. Jesus says, that's why I offer you sustaining grace. Because sometimes in life, professionally, financially, relationally, health, you face some mountains you can't climb, some hurdles you can't jump, some problems you can't solve. And even though, like Paul, you cry out to the Father to remove the thorn in the flesh, to open your peanut butter jar, the answer comes back, no. Because perhaps what God is wanting us to learn is that more than being comfortable, we need to understand his grace. More than being happy, we need to experience his sustaining grace that meets any challenge we face. So what is grace? What we know right now, it only comes to us from Jesus, and Jesus offers us his sustaining grace because sometimes there are problems we can't solve on our own. There's a third piece of this puzzle I want us to see. What's the result of grace? What's the result of grace? When we have a thorn in the flesh, when we have a peanut butter jar, and, and we cry out to the Lord, and the Lord doesn't remove the thorn in the flesh, and he doesn't open the peanut butter jar, what is the result of his grace flowing into our lives? Come back and look at the text. Verse 9. And Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. The word sufficient there literally is translated enough to be content. Jesus says to Paul, Paul, in your thorn in the flesh, in your peanut butter jar that you can't open, you plead and you plead and you plead, and I'm leaving it there because I need you to learn the lesson, Paul, that when my sustaining grace comes into your life, the presence of my grace is sufficient for you to be content in life. I may not answer your prayer the way you want them answered, Paul. I may not solve your problem in the fashion you want your problem solved, Paul. But I want you to learn that in the midst of your problem, as you face the greatest challenge of your life, the presence of my grace is enough for you to be content in life. I learned this lesson watching the events unfold in the life of a young lady I'll call Susan. Susan and her husband lived in an apartment next to Charlene when we were young seminarians back in the mid-80s. 
we moved into our apartment and Susan and her husband lived next door and, and we were all young in those days and all broke in those days and we didn't know any different. Susan had one dream in her life and Susan's dream was to be a mom. And so she and her husband tried and tried and tried and tried to have children. And, and I remember the day that, that Susan came back. In those days, you didn't have uh, the, the really high-tech home kits that you can get these days. So you still had to go down to the doctor and have a doctor's test. And she came back from the doctor and Susan was going to have a baby. She was so excited. She, she had that glow, ladies. She had that glow. So they started getting the nursery ready and they painted and they put all the, the mobiles and everything in those days, the crib and the changing table in the nursery. They got everything right and everything went perfectly well for Susan for about eight and a half months. And then everything went tragically wrong. She went into labor and went to the hospital. In the course of the delivery, the, the oxygen to the brain of her son was cut off for far too long. At the end of the delivery, the little fellow was living, but the doctors told Susan he would never develop mentally. That she could take him home eventually. He would have a couple of years to live at most. He would never learn to talk. He would never learn to express himself. Susan came home from the hospital with her son after weeks. And the nursery looked radically different. Gone were the mobiles, gone were the changing tables, medical equipment everywhere you looked. Monitors hooked to her son so that if he ceased to breathe, the alarms would sound and she would know to call 911. One particular evening, the alarms went off and everybody just raced to their apartment and it was a malfunction. You can imagine the terror in her heart that night. That young fellow did live. He lived to about age three. And then he passed away. My theology tells me that our Lord welcomed him home that night. My heart was broken for Susan and her husband. I went with them to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and on past Baton Rouge to Lake Charles for the funeral. I was walking with them right behind the funeral director who carried that very small casket. We did the graveside. We turned to walk back to head to our cars, and as we walked, Susan said, you know it's true. His grace is sufficient. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to be honest with you. I, I was not taking the death of her son as well as she did. I was a young seminarian. I thought I knew everything there was to know about God. I knew God was all-powerful. I just didn't understand why he didn't reach down and touch that little fellow and restore his body. I was I was angry with the Lord. You, you had the power in your fingertip to sustain his life and to restore his mental ability. But that mom just said, 
It's true. His grace is sufficient. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't know what you're facing in your life. I'm just here to tell you, based on the authority of God's word and the life experience of a young mom named Susan, his grace is sufficient. If it's a financial issue, if it's an employment issue, if it's a relational issue, if it's a virus called corona, whatever you're facing in your life, his grace is sufficient. But what we have to learn to do is to quit straining and to surrender. To quit thinking, if I just try harder, this problem will be solved. If I just work at it smarter, this problem will be solved. What we have to learn to do is say, Lord, I can't do anything about that in my life. I just have to give it to you and trust that your grace will be sufficient. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This morning, if you've never tasted of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to embrace his grace this morning. He died on Calvary's cross as payment for your sin that you might experience saving grace. If you're here this morning and you're wrestling with a peanut butter jar, some problem you've been trying to solve but you just can't, I'm going to invite you as the music begins to play in a moment to just in prayer, will you just hand over that problem to the Lord? Say to him in prayer, I can't, I can't solve this on my own. I need your grace. And may we together as a church lift up this coronavirus to the Father and say, Lord, prove to us afresh and anew your grace is sufficient. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to remain in a spirit of prayer as our musicians just play. You pray.
Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Your saving grace, your serving grace, and especially today, Father, your sustaining grace. May we go forth from this service walking in the midst of your grace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Register, interim pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, visit us on the web at ebcraleigh.com.